great to be with you this morning. Whether you're joining us here in the room or those of you online, glad you are here. As my name tag says, I'm Steve, and I'm the senior pastor here. This is a great Sunday to be here, um, whether you're here or online, because today we're starting our fall focus. Um, and it's a season in our church where we focus deeply on one topic and we do it together um, so that we're moving together as one church family, growing and, and moving in one direction to do what God's called us to do. Now, if you're not yet in a small group, um, there's still, it's not too late. You can still sign up to do so to get the most out of what the season has for you and what God has for you in this season. Just go out to the courtyard afterwards. Neil is going to be at the connect table and he'll sign you up. And that also means that you don't want to miss any of these sermons because um, they're a key piece of this fall focus. So should you miss a Sunday or two, say, right? You can catch up on our YouTube channel or you can drop in on our sermon podcast. You can get, you know, Spotify, Apple or Google, whatever. All right. Um, now, by way of background, um, I moved to Davis eight years ago. And one question that I get asked all the time is, what brought you to Davis? Right? I hear that question almost as frequently as you college students hear, like, what's your major? Right? It has just come up time and time and time again. From the moment I arrived in Davis, even to just last month and two conversations that I had with two separate people. Right? And I guess it's an expected question after hearing about my circuitous route of coming to Davis, you know, growing up in Colorado, spending 15 years in the Northeast, you know, five in a commuter community in central Jersey to Manhattan, another 10 in Massachusetts, right outside of Boston there. And that eventually moved me here, you know. Um, so I guess it's expected to ask that when they kind of hear my route of coming here. And I suppose it's even natural to ask me this after learning that my, you know, my older son is in grad school in Boston and my younger son is in Colorado going to college and most of my extended family lives there in Colorado. And so maybe it's a natural question as well, but it just seems to come up all the time. And usually I answer that question by saying, you know, for a job. Because most people can relate to that, and I don't want to kill the conversation right there by talking about being a pastor, right? Um, other times when I'm feeling a little bit more adventurous or spunky, um, I'll say something like, yeah, spunky, you know. I'll say something like, for a church, you know, because that's even more accurate. Um, and then I can, like, slip in an invitation to the FBC sometime, right? And sometimes when I'm really feeling my oats and I'm, you know, I've had a lot of caffeine from my coffee and just especially bold, I'll say something like, God called me here. And that's the most accurate I can get, actually, with their jaws dropping immediately in shock of that I would say that. But really that answer is the most accurate answer that any of us could give of why we live here in Davis, or for those of you others, right? Woodland and Winters, West Sac and Dixon. It's the most accurate answer that all of you college students could give. All you grad students, all you postdocs at UC Davis, 
beyond getting a degree, beyond adding to your CV. I mean, for sure, we might have come for school or a new job opportunity. Um, we might have been here because of family and, or, or been born here. Or because it's just a convenient home base. Um, we might have even stayed for those reasons as well and, you know, to keep that slice of sunshine that we love here, right? However, those are just circumstantial causes for what brought us to this place. God is the ultimate reason and the ultimate cause. He's the one who pulled the strings of those circumstances to providentially maneuver us around here like chess pieces on his chessboard to occupy the space that we do in life. After all, Paul reminds us, and he says, and he made, that is God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That means the real question isn't what brought us to this place, but who. And if it is who, then why would he do that? It couldn't be just because he loves us a little bit more to give us a slice of sunshine in this weather, right? What does God have in mind for you and for me to go to such lengths as to maneuver us here at this time and in this place. That was a question also on the mind of many Israelites um, after Babylon had conquered them and shipped many of them back to Babylon. Uh, Their heads were spinning because Jerusalem is seemingly where they belonged all along, and that was where God was. And so now, you know, so many were in Babylon that they were outsiders to the culture refugees trying to make sense of what God had in mind for them in this city. And so God had a prophet named Jeremiah write them a letter in this place that was in that city, in this very strange and even hostile culture that they found themselves in. And it's a powerful letter of direction and hope as well. In fact, it's so powerful and it's so substantive that if we'll listen carefully to what Jeremiah has to say and internalize its message, uh, then we'll have incredible clarity for why God has also maneuvered us to this place and what he has in mind for you and for me as we live in this place. Principally, there are three clarifying realities that God wants us to gain in appreciating why he brought us here. He wants us to know the competing options that are floating around us. He wants to know the heart of the reason he brought us here. And he wants us to know what activities we should do therein. And so what I want you to do, I want you to grab your Bible, get your phone open uh, to that Bible app to Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll read verses 1 and then 4 to 14. If you reached one of, for one of those blue Bibles on the chair around you or underneath the chair in front of you, it's on page 656. And once you get there, you can follow along in this, in this letter as Emmy, Emily, Emily Hama comes and reads it for us. And just to make sure that this lands in our hearts and we just don't skip past it, let's pause, let's pray, and ask God to speak to us and internalize it, shall we? Let's pray. 
God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the real hope, the real clarity that we need to know and grasp what you would have us do at this time and in this place, that we might be your people, that we might know your love, and that many might come to honor you and love you as we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The reading today is from Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 1, and then reading from verses 4 to 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bury sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that, are, that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I do not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Emily. Now, the Israelites had unwillingly become refugees in ba Babylon. And so the ideas, uh, rumors, uh, peer pressures were swirling all around them about why and now what to do afterwards. And in those swirling wind of ideas, there are competing options in the air, rivals, if you will, for how they were to understand their place in that city. Um, and, the, and they mirror the options that actually float around us and that we feel. And so God has to get this letter out to his people in Babylon to clear things up. And implicitly, the competing options in the air are right there in this heading to this uh, letter that he's sending that are more explicit in the rest of the book of Jeremiah. 
One option is the one Nebuchadnezzar presented. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king at that time, and he had conquered Israel. He relocated its leaders and its influencers back to Babylon. He wanted to add their talent, their influence, their future to his own, and that way he could make the Babylonian empire stronger, even larger because of this influx of talent and horsepower. And so Nebuchadnezzar's option for them is to assimilate. What he did is he would bring in all these deportees in and show all of Babylon off to them in its shiny brightness. He'd show them the opportunities for careers, the entertainment available, the possibilities for life. And then he'd have them indoctrinated into Babylonian ways and thinking and even let the surrounding culture, uh, you know, pressure them, squeeze them into becoming a naturalized Babylonian citizen. And so Nebuchadnezzar's option wasn't like creating a melting pot of ethnicities and cultures there in Babylon. His option was to make them Babylonian citizens through and through and so that his empire would be all the richer, all the stronger, all the better. His option for them was to assimilate, to add themselves into Babylon like dropping an ice cube into boiling water for just more boiling water for them. Nebuchadnezzar's option is just the ever-present cultural option in how the world works, an option that our culture actually presents to us in so many ways, subtly telling us, you know, just be like everyone else. Fit in. Blend in is the message we get. You know, the latent pressure... The the cultural flow that's easier to go with than it is to fight against. I mean, we feel that in so many ways, don't we? I mean, we feel it in the cancel culture we're in or the latent threats there on social media. We feel it in Davis with with this pressure to keep up and succeed and achieve academically to, to be somebody. We feel it in the political culture to pick a side and join the fight against the other evil empire right? Assimilate is one option in our day too, and it was presented by Nebuchadnezzar in their day. The other competing option was what the prophets presented. Jeremiah wasn't the only prophet in Israel at this time. There were a whole group of prophets, and some of them were there in Babylon, and they were trying to give God's word, God's mind on the matter as to the why and the how of what they should be doing. It's just that their message wasn't from God. God had not given them this kind of a message. They had gotten their wires crossed and become overly optimistic. They kept insisting that Israel was going to return home very quickly. And that's why God keeps telling the people, don't listen to them. You know, he tells them right in what we heard in verses 8 and 9. But the prophets were still speaking and telling people about and saying that since they would return home quickly to Israel... They should avoid putting down roots. They shouldn't bother with getting too comfortable there in Babylon. And so they should stick to their own. The prophet's plan for them was to separate. After all, you have to picture them walking into Babylon. And the Israelites would have looked around in that city that that Nebuchadnezzar was showing off. 
And they would have seen a religious scene dominated by Marduk, the Babylonian god. They would have looked around the greater society with native Babylonians wandering around and scores of exiles from other conquered nations, all of whom held very hostile worldviews to their own. And so every Israelite would have felt like a minority in their faith. They would have felt like they were surrounded by antagonistic forces against them, against their way of life, against their very faith. And every message from the prophets fueled those fears, uh, created momentum for them to just separate into a Jewish huddle, so to speak. Because after all, they'd be home enough soon. The prophets' plan was for them to separate to mix like oil and water with Babylon. The prophet's option is the religious option that is so often presented, an option that many times we've heard as Christians from other Christian leaders, right, to to do the same, like protect your family and yourself. Retreat out to a safer and less threatening space with just other Christians. Isn't that the option we were told? The fears that they play on us with that. Don't you feel that? Fears about our kids. Fears about how our countercultural convictions might be received. Fears about the deterioration that we might see. And those fears play on us. And so this option seems really sensible and attractive to us, isn't it? It was for the Israelites. And the option was the prophets gave them. Separate. Separate out. Assimilate and separate. Those are the competing options that were floating in the air for them. um, Presented to understand their place in the city and what they should be doing in that city. And it's the competing options that we feel in many ways in our day too. Even implicitly. And those options actually make perfect sense if it's only a matter of circumstance for why God brings people to a place. But it isn't just a matter of circumstance. Our arrival is one as a matter of God. Using that circumstance to maneuver his people. And so those competing options are actually rivals to God's actual plans, God's actual purposes for us. His purpose And the heart of why we're here is to, listen, permeate. Not assimilate, not separate, but permeate. Here's how God actually puts it. Notice really carefully what he says. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. You see, God had brought them to Babylon so they could permeate the city. Yes, uh, God had used this exile to discipline them and for how they had abandoned God over the years and he was using it to realign them in alliance with him. But also God brought them there to permeate the city by them taking their faith 
and what made them distinctive as God's people and to go occupy normal spaces within that city. They weren't just refugees who should separate and stick to their own. Nor had God abandoned them to become Babylonian citizens who assimilated and looked no different than anyone else there in Babylon. God was with them, and that was a game changer. God had brought them there to that place to be residents in normal spaces, in the ordinary flow of life, but doing so with their faith in tow and not hiding it or leaving it at home. I mean, yes, they were to be wise and thoughtful in how they did it, but they were also to be courageous and patient for doing it over the long haul. Did you notice the generations? And that's why God wants them to build houses and settle down for a long time there, to plant gardens and eat what they produce, to marry and have kids whom they marry off and have generations beyond them. And in that way, they'd be taking this posture of permeating the city like residents, being close enough with their presence so as not to separate out like refugees, but distinctive enough as God's people so as not to be just naturalized Babylonian citizens. They were to permeate. Permeate is the very thing that yeast does in dough, which is something I've actually been learning about because I've gotten into making homemade pizza. Um, Homemade pizza is the best in my house because it's enough to draw my 19 and 22-year-old boys out of their rooms, like wildlife, right? And come and sit at this bar that we have in our kitchen and eat and talk like humans, right? It's, it's magic. I can't highly recommend it enough if you have teenagers, right? But the key to great homemade pizza is not the ingredients on top. It's the dough. That's what separates great pizza from the rest of the crowd. And any great pizza chef will tell you this, and it's fascinating to listen in on a place like, you know, Netflix, you know, with Chef's Table Pizza. I love that show, right? But the key to great, for great dough, what you do is you, you begin with water, right? You put a little bit of salt in there and a little bit of flour, and then you start mixing it together. And then you get this yeast, just a pinch of yeast. That's all it takes. You put it in there and you got to mix it thoroughly in and make sure that it permeates the mixture, that it's all the way through. And then once that's all mixed in, you put in the rest of the flour to work it over. And it takes some time, but you have to work over this dough and make sure that everything mixes together and eventually looks like something like this. But especially... You have to do this to make sure that the yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough, that it permeates it. You want, to, you want the yeast throughout that dough. You don't want it separating out into its own little clump. That way, when the dough rests, the yeast can make it rise and creates these pockets of air in the crust like this that make for a great pizza. That's the magic of great pizza. The yeast has to permeate the dough. It has to be mixed in and to be close enough to everything else. But it has to be distinctive. It has to be yeasty, if I could put it that way, to like rub off on the rest of the dough 
and change it to something magic, right? So powerful that grown sons will emerge from their room. It's that powerful. To permeate like that has always been God's purposes for why he maneuvers his people around this globe and into the places that he always does. It was for Abraham and Sarah when he moved them into Canaan to be residents and agents of God's blessing. It was for Joseph whom he maneuvered all the way to Egypt to work for various Egyptians there to save the world. It was for Daniel and his three friends to be maneuvered into Babylon as part of those who are listening to this very letter we're reading, to be residents, royal trainees for Nebuchadnezzar. And it was for Esther, whom he maneuvered within Persia to be a resident in the flow of those who would be considered for queen. So you see, we come from a long line of God's people over the ages, whom God has maneuvered into spaces and places so that we permeate it. You see, instead of giving into the pressure of just going along with what's happening and becoming like everyone else where we live, where we work, where we play, instead of giving into those fears and discomforts about what we see happening all around us and separating out, God would say, permeate the city. Occupy normal spaces with your faith in tow, that we're to take our faith in Jesus and what makes us distinctive as followers of Jesus and go occupy spaces that we do, offices, job sites, and classrooms, relationships and friendships, neighborhoods and communities, sports teams, social circles, and the PTA, right? Yes, we have to be wise and thoughtful and help each other not to fall into synchronism or syncretism or isolation on the other hand. And yet, we have to grow in the scriptures and, and listen to our conscience about where we need to stay distinctive and where else we might be able to accommodate. But listen, God has brought me here today, this. He has brought you here to the spaces that you're in so that we might permeate it by occupying ordinary spaces within the city with the distinctiveness of being a follower of Jesus. That's the heart of why God has maneuvered us here. So the question we have to ask is, what exactly does God then want us to do as we permeate this city? Like, what's this real activity that we should busy ourselves with to, to posture ourselves for as we occupy these normal, ordinary spaces? And it's nothing less than this. Listen, taking a posture of seeking its welfare. Here's how God put it. He said, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is counterintuitive. Countercultural. I mean, the Israelites had only known hostility from Babylon. That's what happens when you get conquered, right? They only knew the pressure to conform to Babylon as an exiled people there. 
So seek their welfare and pray for them? Are you kidding me? Like, shouldn't we undermine, you know, act like terrorists or something to pray for their destruction even? That would be easier to stomach, more natural to do. And God says, no, 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 no. No to them and no to us. Don't wallow in how the culture ignores you or how people are suspicious of your faith. Don't mourn the prominence that you once had. Become missionaries where you live, work, and play. Letting the distinctiveness of your faith rub off on people around you because you're close enough to be able to do that. Seek the welfare of the city and pray for it, God says. And do it even in the face of hostility or the apathy that you feel from the culture around us, in spite of its latent pressures to conform you. Or to put it another way, be agents of constructive peace, helping people to flourish in the city. Or let me put it differently, act and pray for the good and the well-being of that place. It's a way that we live out being an ambassador of hope by the power of the Spirit here at FBC. So work for justice? Yes, when necessary. Engage in evangelism and share your faith? Yes, when the opportunity opens up. Rejoice with those who rejoice? Weep with those who weep? Yes, because we identify with them as our community. Pray for God to pour out his favor on the people we see, including those who seemingly have it out for us? Yes, because prayer is always a fitting response, leveraging the power of God in a life. You see, God has brought us here to permeate this place in order to seek its welfare. Now think about that for a second. That's a humongous activity, isn't it? I mean, like, what isn't in that kind of a thing, right? It's so sweeping, so all-involving, so big, we can get lost in the details of it, or we can do so many things we don't do anything very well at all. So where do you and I even begin to think about starting this? How about this? Be a good neighbor. Just be a good neighbor to the people who literally live right around you. Whether that's a dorm or an apartment or a duplex or a house. And I'm not talking about just being friendly, making sure we're on a first name basis with them, waving when we see them. It's that, but it's so much more. Being a good neighbor is about seeking their welfare and praying for our neighbors. It's cultivating a relationship with them, sharing our tools and a cup of sugar with them, using their tools and getting a cup of sugar from them, and doing that without hiding our faith in Jesus. This is something that all of us can actually do because people live all around you, don't they? No matter how introverted you may be, no matter how extroverted you may be, no matter how much time you have or don't have, no matter how much progress you've already made with neighbors or how little that you know about them, 
we have a style of neighboring where we could seek the welfare of our city in keeping with who we are and in keeping with what God is telling us to do here. That's why our church is engaging in a fall focus this October and November where we're going to preach, we're going to read, we're going to process in small groups something called The Art of Neighboring. And we'll be using this book, surprisingly called The Art of Neighboring, right? I slipped one past you there, didn't I? This is actually going to guide and form how we're going to go about doing this and how we can be good neighbors as followers of Jesus. And you can get a book this morning right outside of the Connect table. Neil has a whole stack of them. And if you want to grab one, go ahead. If you want to offset the cost, like give him five bucks or something, right? And if you are online and you would like a book, then just email us your name and your address and we will mail you a free copy, right? So we can do it. So this week, what I want you to do is I want you to get the book. That's your assignment. Get the book. And next week, we'll begin reading together after the sermon, and it will cover chapters 1 and 2. But we're going to immerse ourselves in neighboring over the next couple of months to understand God's neighboring, uh, his mind on neighboring. To internalize, uh, you know, the neighboring's importance in living out this call for us to seek out the welfare of the city. And actually to take next steps with our neighbors. No matter where we're at and how good and how practiced we are at doing it. We're going to do it together. Because imagine, imagine for a second, the welfare that would be unleashed if we were to jump in and begin doing this for the long haul. Imagine the hope commended. Imagine the good experienced. Imagine the blessing from God coming on people living right around us. I mean, we might imagine how it might impact this epidemic of loneliness, which our Surgeon General flagged as an alarm just this past May, and move towards being a part of a solution to this huge problem our entire country is facing. And it's plaguing so many and causing physical and mental health problems all around us. We might imagine how we might be a solution to that just by neighboring. Or we might imagine how we'd be a part of rebuilding social capital around here after everything we've been through the last few years. You know, a social capital that has been found to be more critical for a neighborhood's resilience than their money, abilities, intelligence, or creativity. Or we might imagine what the chief of police, Darren Pytel, shared with our staff when we met with him in late August to talk about trends he saw in Davis. And how neighboring, he said, would help us make better decisions because people would not be alone and only worse off with drugs involved. How neighbors could act as early detection systems of small problems before they become really big problems that the police have to step in and handle. Or how neighbors could help conversations in our town, especially with those who disagree and are different than we are. Or we might imagine what chat GPT might have to say, right? And the good brought through neighboring. Everything from security and reducing stress 
to community engagement and raising property values. Okay, maybe that last one is not so good because we're in a kind of a hot area and it's hard to get in, but chat GPT finds good neighboring enhances the quality of life in any number of personal and communal and neighborhood facets. Being a good neighbor is just that powerful. And even more powerful for us as followers of Jesus because we are God's conduits of bringing blessing and welfare to this place with even prayers being answered and God happily sharing his resources to make sure that the city does better because of us. You see, God has brought us here to permeate this place in order to seek its welfare, beginning with just being a good neighbor. But maybe there's some doubt lingering there about this whole endeavor. If this could work, you know, if it's worth it, if we're going to open ourselves up to more trouble, if we're going to be able to handle all that's going to come our way by engaging neighbors more deeply... Let your heart rest. Because God does not just have will, uh, you know, wishes and intentions for us. He has plans. Plans. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. God has every intention and plan to meet us with good, a future and a hope, just like he did with the Israelites when they were in exile, as we'll step out and seek the welfare of our city. So sure, we'll feel disappointment. There'll be that in there. And impatience and fear along the way and what happens. But God has plans to meet us with good, a future and a hope. And we know it to be true because all we need to do is look at Jesus to see God's plans of good for us and the extent that he would go to make sure that good in his plans would come to us in Jesus living and dying and rising for us. So let's not be dissuaded here. Let's not shrink back. God has ultimate plans of good for us and our neighbors, and so let's live into God's sovereign purposes for bringing you and for bringing me to this place by seeking its welfare and just begin by being a good neighbor. Let's pray, shall we? God, it is mind-boggling to think and consider how you have maneuvered and moved us all here, and we find ourselves not just in this place, but we find ourselves in this place together. It's mind-boggling to think that you are strategically involving us in your purposes in this place and put us in these ordinary places that we occupy to seek the welfare of these people around us. It's hard to grasp that not just that you would do it, but you would include us because we feel so ordinary. And so God, at the outset of this fall focus, at the outset of this um, thing that we were trying, give us the courage to be distinctive in our faith without hiding it. Give us the thoughtfulness we need to know what exactly to do 
and how exactly to express our faith in Jesus. Give us the patience to seek the welfare of this place over the long haul and not just be doing this as a blip on the screen, trusting that you will bring results in your time. Bless this place as only you can. Bring favor to our neighbors. The neighbors that we are bringing to mind right now, would you bring favor to them? And would you even use us to do that? So that everyone would know your goodness, your love, and your glory like we do in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. You can take a seat. That line, simple line, we've heard it before. If you've been in church, light in the darkness. That's what my ear caught, and that's what I long for. I long for God to bring his light into my own life, the dark parts of my own life, the dark parts of our church, for, you to, for him to bring his light. And um, this idea of neighboring that, you know, we all go out with a little light bulb and, you know, bring it to our neighborhoods, that there would be more light um, in maybe the dark spots of our neighborhood. And so I'm excited for this series, excited to continue on. Before we go, I have a few things to tell you about, and we're a little late, so I'm going to go quickly. If you want to continue your worship and giving, you can do so in the offering boxes in the back, or you can check the QR code that's on the offering boxes if you want to give online. And now would also be a great time to fill out that Connect card we talked about. If you want all the announcements in your inbox, you can just tell us your name, sign up for the weekly e-news, and give it to the person at the Connect table. And then two things I want to tell you about that are on the little bulletin that you could have gotten as you walked in. The first is, again, I'm in my party shirt. We are having a Welcome Back College Students All Church Lunch. Very excited about this. And this is what I want to say just to you college students, particularly if you're new, you might not know people's names here. People might not know your names here. But this is true. You are loved. You are loved and you are wanted here. You can applaud again. Yeah. Um, and the food and the decorations and everything that's being provided by lots of people in this church is done because you are loved and because they want to know you and want you to flourish here. And so I hope while you're eating that you would be filled with that goodness and, and that joy. And so please, everyone, join us for lunch in the Fellowship Hall after this service. And, uh, and then lastly, we just got launched into our fall focus about neighboring. And the city of Davis has something pretty much tailor-made for us to do in about two weeks. In two weeks is the Davis Neighbors Night Out. And if you don't know what this is, it's a, it's a time for the whole town to gather in different like block parties and stuff for neighbors to get to know each other. And so as your church, we want to invite you um, to consider participating in a robust way. And if there's a party that's going to be happening in your neighborhood, join. Bring some food, uh, bring some conversation, and get to know your neighbors. Start to live this out. And if you don't have a party planned in your neighborhood, there's still time. If you go to the cityofdavis.com, whatever, .org, uh, they have all the information that you would need to start one of these parties. It'd be great to have more of them happening in, uh, in the town. And if you don't live in Davis, like me, be like my neighbor Fernando, who just two days ago, we always talk about his pistachio farms the trees that he's working on. And just two days ago, he knocked on our door and gave me a big bag of raw, unpeeled pistachios. Made my day. So be like Fernando. Can you make a commitment on October 15th, maybe if you don't live in Davis, to live in to Davis Neighbors Night Out and do something neighborly? Let's stand for the benediction. Oh, church, may the God who loves you 
loves you so much. May he give you the good gift this week of a chance encounter with a neighbor, um, a, a surprising love in your heart for a neighbor. And would you be, church, the yeast in the pizza dough that makes your neighborhood something magical? Go in peace and let's eat some lunch. <laughs>